I'm just that's real talk. Like no, she's fair. Vice President Harris, and the people need to be putting respect on her name. Yeah. Hi everyone, welcome to Black and a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April. And I'm Jonathan. We're brother and sister, looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. On this week's episode, we are really excited to share our conversation with Dahlia Ferlito and Yvette Ale. Uh, Dahlia and Yvette are organizers, uh, both based out in Los Angeles. Dahlia is the founder of White People for Black Lives, which is um, an organization out there that was featured actually in the Chelsea Handler documentary recently about anti-racism. And Yvette is the coordinator of Justice LA, which is a coalition of organizations in Los Angeles, um, of which White People for Black Lives is a member. Um, so before we get to that com- sort of complex, uh, very, very interesting conversation with them, um, April, what's on your mind? Well, I think it just goes without saying that the the weight off my shoulders, the lack of yes. anxiety and stress that I felt uh, this past week, I think I need to talk about that. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? And I think uh, I think it's safe to say that it was mostly due to the inauguration that we just had where uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris officially became the president and vice president of these United States. Whoop, 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 Thank whoop, whoop. goodness. I never thought I'd be so happy to celebrate Joe Biden. An old ass white. Yeah. <laughs> but like, <laughs> oh my goodness. He's old He's too. like a hundred. And it's just, I'm not trying to be, but like he is. Yeah. Like, he is so That's, that's a old. thing. That's a thing. But it just goes to show that yeah. like, yeah. having someone who is so old and even like so far from like my ideal of a president like the, well hold on the the author of the 1994 crime bill yeah like that's yeah. who he is right right like right I, bill I, at the right time he I, says i'm still so <laughs> <laughs> right like i'm a hater right but like... no but like uh, that, that just speaks right. so much to yep. how the nightmare that was is donald j trump <laughs> And like, it's just it's it's amazing. Yeah, he is. When the I news, hardly watch the news anymore. Say, when the news, when I when <laughs> I you know turn on the news, it's like it can just be in sort of in the background, and I don't it's feel like, like I'm going to be triggered. But every like, well, and there are like stories about like FBI investigations into mm-hmm. other random stuff. There are stories yeah. about uh, the stock market, yeah. the GameStop, like yeah. did this cool thing on the stock market, whatever. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but it's I like, that, was a, of the... that was a huge story and it didn't involve Trump at right. all. I haven't thought of the nuclear codes. Yeah, <laughs> which are in, Anytime. which were in a card, just so everyone knows, written in a card in Donald Trump's pocket. At all times. For the last four years. By law, like he has it with him. It's just like. The football. It, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it's not, you know now this utopia but at least the there's comfort in the fact that there's someone who is stable who's aware well and who's wise I, it's just comforting to know that i can disagree with someone i cannot support someone's politics 100 percent, but you can feel confident that they're not going to be reckless 
They're going to make wise decisions. I may disagree with them, but I know they won't be made because someone's having a bad day or someone needs to get revenge on or he, his someone. ratings were or, he was he was covered in the news in a certain way right right it's like, just my God. yeah and i feel like there's room here with with biden there's room for discussion and uh rationale right and and it doesn't mean everything's gonna be perfect it's far from it there there's no way he you know yeah, whatever. Crime bill. But it's just... <laughs> like, I'm just going to keep, like, barking that in the background. But it's just, like, there's a... Uh, we can just sort of catch our breath a little bit and then get back to it. Well, you know? and, and so, like, all the stuff... For me, I, of course, like, nerd out about it, right? And I'm go, I go straight to, like, okay, what are the legal stuff that he can change mm-hmm. immediately? So all the stuff he's doing within these first few days are just reversing these... Biden is reversing these things, these horrible things that Trump put into place, like by tweet sometimes. Like he was like, I hereby declare that trans people cannot be in the military. Yeah. Like end of order. And like that's now that's he's like, I'm doing an executive order to, of course, undo that. Right. That's to me. It's like that doesn't count as an executive order for Joe Biden. That's just him. That's just us writing a wrong. Like, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, of course you're Republicans saying, well, that's, you know, he's doing exactly what people accuse Trump of doing. They're just undoing all of Obama, all the Obama-era policies. And it's like, yes, in that things are being undone, but some set of things that are being undone with Biden are are letting people get back to living. Well, and it's and like... It's, it's like... not like... Uh, when oh. when when Biden undoes something, people breathe a sigh of relief. When Trump is undoing something, people get anxious because their lives are being so right. Affected. Like so, we have like twelve years until the Earth starts to like actually melt. You right. know? and so right. like he's undoing Trump, taking us out of the Paris Climate Accord. Yeah, like so, I'm yelling because it's like you idiots. Yeah. Like you you. Your tax cuts, Mitch McConnell, all you like those those people, all the Republicans who are like, this is worth it because we'll sign through this legislation that we want for our donor friends who give us money. Um, it's worth us damning our kids and grandkids because we'll yeah, be, they'll dead, be by dead. dead. Yeah, it's like I'm, I'm so crazy. I've genuinely thought to myself, like at 27, like thinking about having children one day. Is it even responsible right. for me right now to right. have children? not being able to guarantee them a full and happy life. Right. Because the earth might explode before they get to live out right. live it out naturally. And I'm even like, is it responsible for me to add another human to the planet? Right. Like Right. You know? Okay, we're getting too deep. But like but 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 yeah, so but those like we anxieties. Weren't the, we weren't even in the Paris climate accord. Right, right. right? Those, like, so those yeah. sort of like macro anxieties are <sighs> are lifted. And, and yeah, it's just, I can't stress enough that I, I just, I get fr- so frustrated when people say, well, well, Biden did this and he's not blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, no, he's like, far up, from Chad, perfect. He's so, up. so far from perfect. If I were picking like my top, you know, list of 100 people to be president, Elizabeth if I just Warren. could choose, <laughs> Biden might not be on the list, but like, it, y- there's just no argument that it, Yeah. Yeah, but he, so he like just we, people, yeah, it just uh, the the apples to apples thing is just it's so yeah, it's, it's not, so it's, tired at this point. Like I, I it's so even, hard for me to entertain people right. who say, well, you know, both sides. I don't agree with Biden on, but well, it's like I don't agree with him on a lot too. But I don't think he's going to kill me in my sleep tomorrow. Like, and I think all people, he thinks all people should be treated like human beings, right? And Trump doesn't, so right. that's just he doesn't. So, 
But wait, so we have to talk about real quick before we move on. We have to talk about because um, we talk about Kamala, obviously, mm-hmm. um, Vice President Harris. Oh my God! Right. Um, but can we talk about the inauguration for just one okay, second? Okay. So can we so, talk about? Wait, wait. You okay? Go ahead. When did you, you start crying? You cut me off a lot, so I'll. Are it's, you serious? It's reparations for uh, okay. to you for mm-hmm. all my uh, mansplaining. Yeah, yeah. So I, what I was gonna say is, of course. When did when I start did crying? You start crying. When did I start crying? So I started crying when I saw the Obamas. Same. When they introduced together, them. and it's like, first of all, burgundy. I can't like, even. Her burgundy I, I like chills. suit pants, like with her. like a cape. Who wear like I, so a monochromatic like? She's just per- oh my like God. on and popping, and then and and the president with his all gray. Notice also right. finger waves. Right. Did you see yes. the full uh, around the head finger waves? Yes. Like it's like Barack. Thank you. Thank you. Keep writing. Keep doing your thing. I like, just can't. Like, I got chills when I mm, saw them. Mm, and it's just. Mm. It's Dude. crazy because, like, I wouldn't be one to fall out in church. Mm. And I'd be one to sort of judge other people who do. Because, right. like, like, you're, you're making sort this of Like, stop. Yeah. But, like, I almost fell out. Right. In my basement <laughs> from watching them <laughs> on the screen. So. Yeah. That's when I started crying. Yeah. And yeah, from there it was just wait. So have we have to talk about Amanda Gorman? Yeah. So that if look, so to our listeners, if look, if you don't, um, if you haven't seen the poem that the youngest poet laureate Amanda Gorman performed, she's twenty two years old, uh, at the inauguration. You must haven't lived. Yeah, your life has not been what it could be. Um, she was, she stole the show of the first, you know, first female, first, uh, black, first of South Asian descent vice president. She stole the, that show. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that Trump wasn't there, she stole that. No one thought of that Yeah, because she just yeah. stole the entire show. If you have not listened to this poem, um, you, you. You must. And it was funny watching her with Anderson Cooper afterwards, like the day after. He just couldn't even. He, he was, didn't even. It was like geeking out. It's like, funny to see. He, right. It's funny to see someone like him be just flabbergasted yeah. and like starstruck. Yeah. Because like you're just. She just transcends. Yeah. Like, you know, she was. Grace and poise. Uh, and. I'm so excited. She also overcame a stutter. Also right, yeah, as yeah. a younger person. And she's 22. So like. She's 22. She's I can't wait until student. she's. 40 right. and when she's 60 like well, I can't wait to see I can't wait to be a part of her right you know creative journey that's just gonna be yeah, yeah I, just, I can't wait to just be monitor. So great. she has all these bookings now or, or or she's been signed with like I think modeling some modeling okay. agencies or something yeah. and another rep being represented of course by some uh, you know uh, an agency that's gonna yeah. like Ugh. uh in terms of her writing and poems from here on out. Like, what is even going to happen? I can't even... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, She's a star. So, first woman. Mm-hmm. First black woman. First woman of Indian descent. Yeah. Vice president. Vice president. Of the U.S. Yeah. Kamala Harris. Yeah. And it's... It's so weird because it feels like that wasn't celebrated mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, one, because she's vice president and not president. Right, and, right, you know, right. They're not the star of the show. But, right. like, I think it, 
I think it was a couple of things. It was the relief of having Joe Biden be inaugurated. Right. The uh, over Trump. Yeah, over Trump. Yeah. The the star power, honestly, of some of the performances. This Amanda Gorman, Lady Gaga. Lady like, Gaga sorry. turned it out like she. Yeah, she. And she really did. She, I think that shows you how, yeah, the relief that is Joe Biden being president because Kamala's because he is first, such a like deficit. Yeah. yeah, Kamala's <laughs> first. Uh, weren't the center of the story um someone said which was which hold was on, so someone said crazy. recently every position that kamala has held she has been, She's a been first, the first yeah that's first woman or first black woman yeah. or first how old is she uh 57 50, or something yeah. cool so that was not a, not 107 no, you know right She's 57 she exudes confidence mm-hmm. and competence mm-hmm. and even more than competence because mediocre people can be competent. Say, so yeah. like, I hate when people use that word because it's like competence is a comparison to Trump. Yeah, and expertise. But that's not what we're comparing it and, to. We're yeah. comparing it to the actual bar, which mm-hmm. is not what Trump was. Yeah. Like he was an he was a um, such a departure from everything that the presidency and vice presidency were supposed to be. You can't name one thing that Pence did, you know. And so right. Kamala is, you know, Vice President Harris. I call her Kamala because I'm black and she's black. You should not if you aren't. <laughs> I'm just, that's real talk. Like, no, she's fair. Vice President Harris and the people need to be putting respect on her name. Yeah. So all that is to say. I'm yelling. I'm sorry. Super excited that we get to speak with Dahlia and <laughs> Yvette I'm so, today because it was so the work fun. that they're doing, we, it, yeah, we have the you know, enough foresight to, to know that it's still going to be very much needed. So when we come back, we'll have our conversation with Dahlia Ferlito and Yvette Ale. So Dahlia and Yvette, thank you so much for joining us today on Black Hand. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. We are so excited whenever we get to talk to folks who are are known in the sort of activists and uh, anti-racism and community. And so we, I know all the work that you all do uh, out in LA from my time there. But I'm excited to sort of share, you know, share your stories with our uh, with April here and with our with our audience. So I guess we could start, Dahlia with you. Um, do you want to just tell us a little uh, about yourself and your background and sort of how you came to be where you are? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, my name is Thalia Ferlito. My pronouns are they, them. I'm originally from a small city outside of Boston. So for any of your listeners that might know where Everett, Massachusetts is, that's where I uh, did most of my growing up and then um, made my way over to Los Angeles back in 2003. And I grew up a uh, working class in that area, um, and you know, grew up in a in a family where you know we uh, in in our white working class family we didn't really talk about race because you know that was supposed to be, you know, the the right thing to do because um, that's how we're ten- we tend to often get socialized as white folks. And so I didn't really grow up with um, an analysis of any sort. And but what I did uh, have was really just like a general desire to kind of understand what was going on within the context of my family and some of the financial struggles that we were facing that seemed to be different than what other people were experiencing. 
And so um, fast forward to some study taking me to capitalism. And so for a long time, I felt like capitalism was kind of the root of all evil. And that was sort of what led me to feel that that was like the the major issue of our time and kind of became anti-capitalist, socialist and so forth. And it was completely absent of a racial analysis. So I managed to make it kind of like all the way through high school, all the way through college at a liberal institution in, in Boston um, without really acquiring uh, any form of analysis of uh, racism, of you know white supremacist system and so forth. Um, and I was organizing in 2008 with a group of folks related to uh, what was happening here at the time, which was Proposition 8, which was the marriage equality ban out here in California. And so it was a small group. We were kind of just like folks that worked together. We were friends and we began organizing together kind of organically. But I just happened to be the only white person in this group. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, organizing with them. We were doing some anti-racist in sort of intersectional um, anti-racist work. And I was starting to build some language and vocabulary about um, interlocking systems of oppression, but not really understanding my place in it all. And then um, ultimately I was behaving in ways that were problematic for folks. And I found out through a text that was um, kind of a text that was not meant for me, but uh, was about me. And so the text said, have Whitey do it. And so when I received that text, it opened up an opportunity for me to have a conversation with my friend in the collective and then ultimately everybody else in the collective about the ways that I was behaving that were causing harm to folks that I cared about. And when I got that information, my friend couched it in the fact that I had white privilege. And so when I received that uh, feedback, I kind of actually behaved in the ways that were characteristic of a lot of white people. If anybody has ever read, um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on it right now, but we'll white find fragility. It Sorry, too. white fragility. Sorry, was, you know. There you go. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I behaved in all the sort of white fragile ways and, and was really, you know, and it, w it was hard. It was hard for my friends. It was hard for me. We ended up going through a restorative uh, justice process. And folks said to me, I'm committed to making you an anti-racist. And those folks were the ones that turned me on to the Alliance of White Anti-Racists Everywhere, also known as Aware LA. And in 2009, I attended the Unmasking Whiteness Institute, which is about a four and a half day intensive for white folks to really understand and get language for and vocabulary around structural racism, interpersonal racism, cultural racism, historical implications of white supremacy and its present day realities and so forth and how we can better show up in solidarity with people of color led movements. So that was sort of me getting thrown into the deep end around anti-racism. Um, and from there, I spent years just in a, in a, in a study of, of, uh, of whiteness and interrogating my own whiteness and, and quite frankly, with a lot of guilt and shame and, and not really knowing what to do with it all and, um, and not wanting to make a mistake, not wanting to cause harm again inadvertently. Um, and then in 2014, when there was the uprising in Ferguson, I was really uh, moved to want to do something to support the Black Lives Matter movement, but I wasn't sure what that was supposed to look like. And then a friend of mine passed along information about uh, a call that Showing Up for Racial Justice was doing back in November in 2014 that literally said calling, you know, uh, white folks to respond to Ferguson. And so I sat on that call 
like 500 other people from across the country uh, and then got really inspired to want to do something and got some information about what that can be for white folks to show up in a healthy way and, and solidarity with black led and other people of color led movements. And um, I reached out to my folks in Aware LA, long story short, ended up having a meeting in my living room and we've been thrown down since. So it's been about six years that we've been uh, working uh, in solidarity with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and Justice LA and a number of other organizations in, in Los Angeles who are confronting state violence. And so that is, the we there is is white people for black lives, is that right? Yep, that would be white people for black lives. So just to remind our listeners, um, so we spoke with uh, a good friend of the two of yours and and the woman who actually introduced me to the two of you, Liz Sutton, on uh, our season two, episode six. Um, the name of the episode is called Becoming Right Sized with White People for Black Lives. Um, and so we are now working our way up the uh, organizational ladder and talking to, um, as much as uh, Dahlia doesn't want to uh, ever be in the spotlight, the w- one of the folks who founded that that organization. And so um, thank you so much, Dahlia, for, uh, for everything that you're doing and for all the background that you just gave us. I wonder, Yvette, if your story is similar to Dahlia's in any way. Could, could you share with our listeners your background a bit, Yvette? Sure. I don't, I don't know that our backgrounds are (laughs) similar. Uh, I'm I'm trying, well, I guess I'll dive right in and perhaps there's some parallels, but um, uh, I was actually uh, born in Mexico City. Um, So I am Mexican. Um, My mother's Mexican, my dad's Cuban, and I immigrated to the United States uh, when I was fairly young. I was about four years old um, and grew up in Southern California. Um, I grew up undocumented and that's definitely informed a lot of my politics and of course my personal experience. Um, When I was around 11 or 12, uh, my dad uh, started having uh, serious substance use issues and uh, getting in trouble with the law um, and ended up incarcerated uh, for a big chunk of my life um, in jail, in prison, in a deportation center. And my family losing our primary breadwinner when I was fairly young, eventually became houseless. Um, My sister and I, I'm the oldest, um, and there's four of us in total. My sister and I started working fairly young. Um, I started working around 13 um, to support my family. Um, My my mother, um, as to be expected, had um, some mental health issues as a result of Um, the violence that we had experienced leading up to my uh, dad's incarceration and um, ultimately the the loss of any stable financial income and being undocumented, uh, we had little to no support. Um, We also had no family here in the United States. Um, We were we were basically alone and um, had to struggle a lot as a family. I was lucky enough and, and privileged enough to be able to uh, go to college and in a lot of ways um, that that saved my family, um, my all of my siblings, and I have um, have been able to graduate from college. And it was there um, at Berkeley that I got my 
political education and context for what I was experiencing. And I think to a certain degree, I, I had that in, in high school. Um, I, I identified as a socialist. I, you know, read political theory. I was a bit of a, you know, policy wonk even then. Um, but it was really at Berkeley that, that I got language around my intersecting identities. Um, I got language around my queer identity. Um, I got language around um, my my experience as an undocumented person and the the collective experience of immigrant people and undocumented people in this country. Um, and I think most importantly, I got my education around abolition um, and what it meant for me as a survivor of violence and also as someone that has a loved one in that's been incarcerated that's right. also inflicted violence. And so being able to have an, an abolitionist education through an, a remarkable organization in the Bay Area called Justice Now um, allowed me to have a pathway for healing uh, that was true to my politics, that uh, reflected the redemption and the forgiveness uh, that I gravitated towards because at the end of the day, I, I love my parents um, and understood that a lot of the violence that I, I had experienced was due to uh, unmet mental health needs, to our economic circumstance, uh, to policy around um, uh, people of color and immigrant communities that uh, essentially sets us up for um, for poverty and um, and lack of support. Um, so I experienced that um, working with Justice Now. Um, I supported with this program they have within the women's prisons of Chowchilla, which is a participatory human rights documentation program where um, we intentionally came in to uh, support the people inside of the women's prisons and documenting their own human rights violations to kind of break with that savior uh, model. And I also uh, became heavily involved um, with uh, labor rights work. Um, I became the chairperson of the Latino Pre-Law Society at Berkeley and held monthly legal clinics uh, with this uh, community legal organization called Centro Legal de la Raza in Oakland. And we held um, these monthly legal clinics where we supported undocumented people, day laborers, and filing labor disputes, um, and also organized around LGBTQ rights uh, within Castro for All. And so all of those various identities kind of intersected um, during during my um, my early years as an organizer. But eventually, I decided um, I was going to move to New York and become a fashion designer and DJ. And I did that for many years and did more culture work, um, organizing uh, queer BIPOC um, events, a music platform uh, for uh, queer BIPOC artists um, and uh, created this collective called Asukad where we'd hold monthly events, um, but also uh, create platforms for, for burgeoning artists um, and uh, also create this 
I guess, culture shift of sorts um, around transparency for how much artists were getting paid. So we would uh, openly um, share how much our parties were making, our events were making, how much we were paying artists, so that we started encouraging other nightlife folks to do the same. Um, and eventually, um, I uh, held seminars at uh, NYU um, and other uh, um academic institutions around how to create sustainable underground economies uh, that support um, folks with with living wage uh, in artist communities and came back to Los Angeles about five, six years ago um, and decided I wanted to go back into policy work and organizing work um, in, in a different capacity. So that's how I got involved first in, in my local neighborhood council um, and got elected there and started organizing around budget advocacy uh, for South Los Angeles. I got elected as a, a budget advocate for South Los Angeles uh, within the neighborhood council system, mm. moved into statewide budget organizing with Californians United for Responsible Budget. And it's it's there at CURB that um, that CURB was tapped to be one of the founding organizations of Justice LA uh, for this, the second wave of um, anti-jail organizing in Los Angeles. Um, and since then, we've, um, we've just had incredible victories. And I'm just really privileged to, to be part of, of that team and, um, and to help liberate our people here in LA. Could you talk more about Justice LA Coalition and uh, some of the work you guys are doing? Sure. Yeah, so Justice LA was founded in 2017. Um, Patrice Cullors and Diana Zuniga, who was at CURB at the time, uh, gathered uh, several organizations here in Los Angeles uh, to really expand the net of participation around the jail fight. So up until then, Los Angeles had already approved a $3.5 billion jail expansion plan. And just for some context for, for your listeners, Los Angeles is already the largest jailer on the planet. And wow. Los Angeles jails are the largest institution holding people with mental health needs. So more than any hospital in the country, more than any clinic, Los Angeles jails are that mental health institution. And oh, so- I just made my stomach turn. It's it's disgusting. All right, yeah. <laughs> it's oh. disgusting. It's yeah. draining LA County of billions of dollars every year uh, between the funding that goes to the sheriff's department. So the sheriff's department runs the jails, right? The sheriff's department also feeds the jails. And community here in Los Angeles has been fighting against jail expansion and, and fighting against the PIC, that's the prison industrial complex here in LA, you know, for decades. Um, but it's, it's been a handful of organizations and a handful of individuals that have sustained that fight. So when 2017 rolled around, there was an opportunity to really expand uh, the net and the consciousness of the people of Los Angeles to participate in that fight. And over the last few years, uh, we've significantly expanded that net. And I would say um, 
a large part of that has been the amazing solidarity work uh, that White People for Black Lives has done um, in collaboration with uh, BIPOC-led organizations like the Youth Justice Coalition, like Dign Dignity and Power Now, who I work for and which was founded by Patrice Cullors before uh, BLM. And um, of course, Curb, um, Critical Resistance, uh, and, and so many other organizations that have been in this fight for a really long time. And so uh, since then, not only did we stop the $3.5 billion jail expansion plan, um, we've also instituted what's called the Alternatives to Incarceration Initiative. So we, first stopped the women's jail and the mental health jail. They were going to create two jails. We stopped those. And then the county was like, well, you know, instead of building a mental health jail, we're going to build a mental health hospital, but it's actually still going to be run by the sheriff's department. We called bullshit on that. And mental we said, you know, that, that's just a jail by another name. Right. It's still a jail. If it's still a locked facility run by the sheriff, it doesn't right. matter if you call it a hospital or right. like the St. Regis hotel, like it's right. still a yeah. jail. Yeah. And so we were successful in stopping that as well and shifting the narrative where we had the Board of Supervisors, which had previously pushed this along for years. We had some of the, the members of the board saying a jail is a jail is a jail and using our own rhetoric of care first um, as their own mantra. And so we were successful in in really shifting the narrative here in Los Angeles, um, not just among the leadership, but the people of Los Angeles, where now we're seeing abolition being um, a position and like a, a legitimate policy position that is is garnering a lot of support, um, especially through this alternatives to incarceration initiative, uh, which. Um, has been successful both in local policy, but also um, just this fall and on in the no November elections, um, not only did the community here in Los Angeles get Jackie Lacey out, we passed Measure J, which is the only initiative of its kind in the country, which essentially um, mandates the county to set aside 10% of our local tax revenue. So we're talking about sales tax, property tax, for alternatives to incarceration and community investment like housing. And here's the kicker, not a single one of those dollars can go to or through law enforcement. So it's essentially a defunding of law enforcement through this ballot initiative, which passed uh, last fall. Right. Oh. Wait, so I, I need to, I can't let this pass because um, uh, this was a huge deal. And uh, you mentioned this person, Jackie Lacey. Could you just tell our viewers who that is? And, or sorry, our listeners who that is? And you said you got her out. So so talk more about that, please, if you would. Sure. I'm actually going to hand this over. Dahlia has been at the forefront of this for, yeah. for years. So yeah. I'd love for you to talk more about that. Well, I, I can't say forefront per se, but you know, I'll say I've been around. Um, so <laughs> yeah, you've been, so around. <laughs> been around that block. Um, so uh, Jackie Lacey is our, well, was our uh, district attorney in Los Angeles County. She was elected in 2013 and she has 
essentially just like proven to be an obstructionist district attorney who uh, does not care about the people of Los Angeles County. And she's demonstrated that in a number of ways, and particularly um, uh, the ways in which she has continued to prosecute uh, black folks, indigenous folks, and other people of color. And she has a long record that also includes only um, uh, pursuing death penalty case cases against um, people of color um, and being uh, um, unable to support uh, progressive reforms that can actually decarcerate folks, get folks into treatment, get folks into services, instead of putting folks into jail. So she has just completely been an obstructionist all along the way. And as if that wasn't terrible enough, um, uh, she's continued to, she had continued to allow law enforcement to kill with impunity during the, the course of, of her, of her um, reign within the district attorney's office. And so um, while she was in the district attorney's office, um, there were over 600 people within Los Angeles County that were killed by law enforcement, and not one law enforcement officer was held accountable. Now, of course, she would say, you know, there, there wasn't enough to build a case, this, that, and the other, make excuse after excuse. Um, but at the end of the day, she refused to ever pursue uh, criminal action against law enforcement officers, even when in internal investigations had proven that the law enforcement officers acted um, out of policy, and she would still refuse to actually pursue criminal charges, with the exception of, I believe, uh, one person um, out of the more than 600 uh, uh, murders. And so uh, because of, of that track record, uh, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, more than three years ago, began um, ha uh, a campaign specifically targeting Jackie Lacey. So we were holding, first it began as uh, a petition gathering, uh, gathering signatures. So we tried to present more than 10,000 signatures demanding that uh, Jackie Lacey both meet with organizers and families of police brutality victims, as well as take action against law enforcement officers who kill. Um, that, of course, was ignored. Um, we tried we tried phone calls. We tried letter writing. We tried amplification in the media. Uh, we tried, um, you know, every single channel to make our voices heard, including inviting her to a town hall at what point at which point at one time she said that she would, and then she uh, backed out on that. So she consistently wow. refused to meet with community, consistently refused to hold law enforcement officers accountable, which, uh, you know, according to Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, the, what they would say is it's like putting the target on the backs of black folks and brown folks in Los Angeles County because it's giving free reign uh, for law enforcement officers to kill because they know that nothing is going to happen. And so and this includes, you know, multiple, so many egregious cases including a 14-year-old boy being killed in in um, in Boyle Heights, uh, who which was the second person that this in, in two weeks that this one law enforcement officer, uh, Eden Medina, um, killed literally within 12 days. He killed two people, and that person um, still did not uh, uh, receive any charges. So we have so many egregious cases such as that uh, existing in Los Angeles County, and a complete failure on on the part of the district attorney's office to do anything. And so. Um, that that campaign then you know began to escalate into weekly actions at the district attorney's office that were led by Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and um, by the families of police brutality victims and that was um, a specific call from from uh, one person whose sister um, was killed by uh, law enforcement while she was sleeping in the car with a friend 
Um, and so both of them were killed by people, in, uh, by law enforcement officers in Inglewood. And so because of a campaign there, those law enforcement officers were fired. But, you know, her her family was like, well, they can get fired today, but then tomorrow they can work someplace else. So what we really need to do is hold them accountable, you know, through through bringing charges. And so and, um, so Keisha Michaels really led this charge to say we need uh, law enforcement officers actually, you know, pers pursued in, in, of crimes and, and convicted. And so. So we began uh, supporting that call, uh, White People for Black Lives, um, back in October, um, like I said, more than three years ago, meeting weekly at her office. And then we began something called bird dogging, which is um, where organizers, you know, where, wherever uh, Jackie Lacey is, we would, we would find her and we would make her uncomfortable. So whether it was, you know, some folks, you know, somebody saw her on an airplane. Uh, somebody saw her in a restaurant. We found out wherever she was uh, politically trying to, you know, fundraise out in the community when she was trying to raise funds for her, for, um, you know, her next run, you know, we would get information and we would go there and we would make her uncomfortable because, you know, we said, you know, if, if we're not comfortable, then you're not going to be comfortable. If, if folks in Los Angeles County, you know, aren't safe, then you're not going to be comfortable. And so we would go to her house um, in, the, in the wee hours of the morning to uh, make our voices heard there. And at one point, uh, while we were doing that, um, her husband uh, came out onto the, um, the porch with a loaded gun and pointed it at a couple Black Lives Matter protesters and myself um, and threatened to kill us right there on his front porch. And so this is this is the conditions in which we, you know, in an allegedly progressive Los Angeles that we are facing when we choose to um, target elected officials to demand progressive change here in the county. And so, you know, we continued keeping pressure on uh, through various educational campaigns, um, canvassing and so forth in conjunction with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles to really provide Los Angeles County constituents with all of the information about why she is not a district attorney that is for the people. And then she began, uh, uh, Jackie Lacey actually began to try to change her tune and try to market herself as a true progressive, as a progressive DA that actually cares about mental health, that actually, you know, cares about diversion. And, you know, and through that, you know, she she actually refused to resentence marijuana convictions when, when marijuana was legalized, for example. But because of community pressure to say, hey, you are not a progressive, she finally backtracks and decides to, you know, resentence marijuana convictions. But all of that stuff was, you know, the 11th hour. And because Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and other solidarity organizations like White People for Black Lives, AIM SoCal, Ground Game LA, and so many other organizations got together and continued the pressure, continued the um, public uh, uh, education uh, campaign and really educated constituents. And then uh, through that, we were able to make sure that she didn't win her seat again and that another uh, district attorney uh, actually got uh, her seat um, in this election, George Gascon, who has been more committed to progressive change, who is willing to meet with advocates who are pushing for criminal justice uh, reform efforts, or should I say criminal legal system reform efforts. And we, you know, he's not the perfect candidate. And we know that like, you know, the 
electoral politics is electoral politics is not going to be particularly what saves us per se. But what he has done by electing this this candidate has given us better conditions to which to organize. Day one, he was already putting forward um, new policy changes that really spoke to what community advocates had been pushing for for many many years in Los Angeles County. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading about. Uh, you know, well, during my time recently out in LA for the past 18 months or so, hearing, you know, about all of the the weekly sort of meetings at her office, literally, just so our listeners are clear, like, you know, dozens, sometimes hundreds of people, depending on on the week, uh, out in front of, of Jackie Lacey's office every week, um, and, and just really, really staying on her, and it is just something to behold. And I'm, we all remember, the nation remembers, yeah. seeing news of you know, her husband coming out and pointing a gun at you guys, like it just, ugh. Yeah, exactly. And also might I add, you know, when when people who are not aware of, you know, they might see something that happens in the news that like might be an escalatory sort of protest action. Right. What, what folks don't realize is that like, you know, people are doing all of these things. You say, okay, make the phone calls, you know, write the signature, you know, sign the petition, you know, send the emails, you know, do all, we were doing all of that. We were even trying to educate people who were going in and out of the building just by passing out leaflets. The following week, they put barricades up around the building so we couldn't even educate the people going in and out of the building. There there were multiple weeks where there were, there, the law enforcement, the, the sheriff's department were lined up, you know, military style, you know, for for protesters who were literally just in a circle saying the names of victims of police brutality, victim, uh, police brutality victims, or the family members sharing about the lives of their children who were killed by, uh, by police uh, violence. And so, so we were, we were there just to hold space. And yet we were met with such tremendous force, which of course is, you know, as we see much different than, you know, the force of which white supremacists who are actively harming folks are met with. Yeah, so I'm gonna so definitely putting a pin in that what you just mentioned because we do want to talk about the uh, ongoing coup attempt. But before we get to that, Dahlia, I want to ask you. I want to uh, stick with you just for a second because you said something in the beginning uh, that I think our listeners will really be able to uh, benefit from. So most of our listeners are white people. Uh, they're sort of well-meaning folks who listen to us because we talk about race a lot and try to give them ideas on how they can be better white people. And so um, you you mentioned that your sort of, uh, you know, I'll call it like an awakening that you had um, was during the sort of work that you were doing with groups like Black Lives Matter and where you were the only, where you found groups where you found yourself being the only white person. And you said that you were behaving in ways that were problematic. I think that's probably something a lot of white people um, can relate to. And if they can't, uh, it's probably because they don't have honest relationships with black people uh, yet uh, and and don't are being told maybe that some of the things that they're doing is problematic. So I wonder if you could talk about what are some of those things and and how did you come to realize that? And then, you know, sort of what does, you know, we talked with Liz about white people for black lives before, but could you talk about sort of what the aim then of, of that organization is as it relates to, to sort of taking yourself out of the, the larger group and just, just focusing on, on white people for a little bit? 
Sure, sure. And um, just a point of clarification, th this work uh, uh, around anti-racism predated my work with Black Lives Matter. This was a small collective called Equal Action that I gotcha. sort of worked with folks back in 2008 and, and uh, for several years before gotcha. uh, co-founding White People for Black Lives. But all that to say, like, what was happening at that time in 2008 for me was I was being seen as a leader in this collective. I was being seen as an individual for my individual contributions to what was actually collective work. I was the one who was speaking on behalf of, I was the one who was speaking mm. first, speaking most, getting actual public recognition for collective work, like by way of uh, being recognized at Los Angeles City Council with one of those like certificates, um, you know, where I was, I was really focused on productivity and really pushing people and that sense of urgency and not creating space for folks to actually work within a collective um, because, you know, I didn't necessarily see myself as being within a collective. I was very much focused on myself and what I can contribute and, you know, in this sort of individualistic spirit. And I think that like oftentimes in, in multiracial spaces because of how white folks are, are consistently socialized to like, you know, have to prove that we are the, the best, the fastest, most talented, most intelligent. And so, you know, oftentimes that gets rewarded, right? And particularly in like white spaces. Um, and so it becomes a, folks like jockeying for, you know, who to be the best. And, and, and so, um, so what that ends up doing is creating an environment of like, like competition of, you know, self rec of individual recognition mm. and trying to like, you know, be, you know, the best over other people so that we can get that recognition. And so that was what was kind of playing out. Like I was just taking up a lot of space in that collective. And I was, like I said, I was talking over people. I was talking, I wasn't creating um, enough space within the, the, the culture of the collective for, for other opinions to weigh in. Um, I felt like my opinion was the was the one right opinion. It was the only opinion, and other people needed to kind of just get around get get around me and get around that, um, which is is you know unfortunately all too common. Um, and really focus on like productivity and we got to succeed. And if we don't, that it's like my own individual failure. Where somebody actually said to me, you know, we're a collective. We rise and fall together. And like that to me was was like a, I, it was a huge light bulb. Like I never even thought I could consider myself being, you know, within a collective, that it was really just about me um, as the individual. And that, you know, of course, goes to white supremacy culture. So I uh, we've talked with some of our other um guests before about you know the activist work that they do and it's all you know interesting and and unique and depending on the organization that you're you know working with your your work is very unique I would I think it would be helpful to sort of stress um what uh maybe separates white people for black lives and that organization's work um yeah. from from organizations like black lives matter or, sure, or sure. other community-based uh, organizations where um, you have people from, uh, you know, from all different races working uh, together. Yeah, yeah. So, so historically, um, there there have always been kind of movements, right? So, I'll, I'll 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 use an example that most people are familiar with, which is like the civil rights movement of the '60s, right? So, within the civil rights movement, there was work for example, in the South to try to register black folks to be able to vote. 
Um, and within that, there was an organization um, called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that was, you know, largely responsible for a lot of that uh, work with young people and trying to engage in the South in, in that way. And so that organization was multiracial. It was led by black folks for sure, but there were white folks that, that were um, part of that organization. And what they were realizing as they were working together and in, in engaging in uh, voter registration drives and direct action and various things was that, you know, white folks had a particular role in addressing racism within white spaces because white people will listen to other white people in a way that they won't listen to black people or other people of color because there's this sense that there's this other ulterior motive or some sort of hidden agenda or some sort of what you want to make me feel bad or guilty for something i did whatever that is um and so there's so there was this recognition um also that white folks are will show up differently in multiracial spaces and that there are there are times in which black folks particularly need to be working with black folks specifically to address anti-blackness and the implications and the harms of of, of anti-blackness that are not on full display of white folks or people who are not black and so we started to see some of that emerge you know even back in the civil rights era to which actually ultimately led in many ways to white folks um being expelled from from SNCC, from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And, and folks, um, black folks who remain said, you know, white people, you need to do your own work in your communities. Mm. And white folks trying to figure out, okay, well, what does what's that supposed to look like? And there are so many instances in every generation of white folks trying to figure out what does it look like for us to address white supremacy, to address racism in our own communities? Because you know what, I don't need to tell you you know, about racism, I'm pretty sure you probably know about it, right? Like, so, but for white folks, you know, part of that privilege is like, you know, we don't see, we don't have to see it, we don't have to feel it, the, the implications on the daily basis, or we think we don't, right? Like, it gets layered there. But like, um, the long story short is like, you know, we were told, you know, back in the 60s, even by, you know, Malcolm X said, you know, racism is a white people problem, you all need to go into white communities, and you need to figure it out because you're also being, you know, ultimately we're being harmed by this white supremacist system as well, of course, not to the extent of black folks and, and other people of color. And so, so there have been many examples generationally of what that could look like and what people have tried and practiced and tried to figure out that white people for black lives kind of has built upon as we're trying to figure out what solidarity work looks like with Black Lives Matter today. And so, um, you know, in the first year, it was really just rapid response you know folks were saying there's a protest here can you show up with you know these supplies or can you give rides or can you de-escalate with cops or can you de-escalate with counter protesters literally put your bodies on the line for us because people the people who are counter protesters in law enforcement are going to deal with you because differently because you are white and it's going to make it safer for us to be able to protest knowing that you all are here and engaging with counter protests or protesters or engaging with law enforcement 
And then over time, um, you know, as our work began to kind of coalesce around different areas, we were able to see like, okay, we need to have a media strategy so that that media strategy can counter, you know, that the right, the, the media strategy of the right and provide an anti-racist analysis to what's happening today and give people language about um, why, they, why it's best to actually be anti-racist and what the benefit is to that. Then we began to work on ways that white folks can begin to identify their personal stake in ending white supremacy so that we do this not out of charity, but we do this out of solidarity. We do this out of mutual interest because we know that our lives would actually benefit if we were to end the white supremacist system and we were work in a multiracial coalition toward liberation. And so getting folks to be able to articulate for themselves what their actual um, personal stake is in ending white supremacy. And then we also do incredible amounts of political education because, you know, we're not given this type of history around, you know, the history of policing or the history of abolition or what even abolition is, for example, is just a couple of, of many topics that we um, have. But we provide incredible amounts of, of political education for our members. And then we have ways in which people can take action with our solidarity partners, whether it's direct action on the streets prior to the pandemic or during, or virtual actions that we actually um, co-create with Justice LA. We also provide organizer training so folks actually get some um, understanding of what it is to be an organizer and how to have conversations with other white people around um, anti-racism and white supremacy. Uh, right now, we're actually gearing up to launch a couple of programs. One, I'm working with Liz on, whom you mentioned, who's leading this charge of providing white folks with tangible crisis um, crisis intervention skills and organizer training so that they do not feel like they need to rely as much on calling um, 911, for example, so that they can intervene in community crises uh, without relying on law enforcement. And so we're working on an entire project uh, to be able to train white folks on, on that, those particular skills, and then put them into community alternatives uh, to 911, uh, we call it CAT 911 groups that are interspersed all through Los Angeles County with one of our partner organizations, Youth Justice Coalition. We're also working on something called Study in Action, which is um, every week, every folks sit through um, some, some political education, and then they're given an action to take that's in solidarity with one of our partner organizations. And so I say all of these examples because what we're trying to do is provide people the skills to be, white people in particular, the skills to interrupt racism when we see it in multiple forms, whether it's institutionally, culturally, interpersonally, or within ourselves. And so that's the white people for black lives kind of side of things. And then under the AWARE umbrella, we also have the Unmasking Whiteness Institute, which I spoke about earlier. And then we have Saturday Dialogue Spaces, which is what we call personal transformation. It's a time for white folks to kind of come together, interrogate different elements of whiteness. It may or may not lead to direct action in some way, but it's really about like just that reflection space, that unlearning and un un unlearning of um, white supremacy and, you know, getting the language around racism and kind of where we fit into that whole uh, white supremacy project here in the United States. And so so then um, we recognize that this is this work is in addition to not a replacement of working in multiracial spaces. And so we become an offering to our BIPOC, uh, partners to say, hey, if you're looking for white folks particularly, because we know there are some roles that white folks can be helpful um, in in movement spaces, like I was saying, de-escalation or you know, 
working with police, uh, as a police liaison, not working with police, sorry, uh, police liaison at direct actions. <laughs> um, you know, these types of roles that make it safer for BIPOC folks to engage in the work that they're doing, they can call on us and we're hopefully um, not gonna be showing up in ways that are harmful, not gonna be showing up in ways that reproduce white supremacy in those spaces. And we do that intentionally. Um, and so that, so, you know, we recognize that there's spaces for like white folks to be able to caucus to sort out certain things related to our whiteness. But then we also have m many or most, a lot of our time, we're actually working um, in tandem with our BIPOC-led uh, organizations and campaigns. And we just take our cues from uh, those groups, from Black Lives Matter, from Justice LA, and from other groups on how we can then shape some uh, campaigns that we have actually uh, developed over the years. So a couple of years ago when Measure R was on the ballot, which was um, which predated the Measure J, which was around uh, ending jail expansion in Los Angeles County, which Justice LA was working on, uh, we had some of our folks actually develop an entire deep canvassing uh, campaign where folks actually got trained and then went door knocking all across Los Angeles County to have conversations with white folks about divesting from the carceral system and about sharing their own personal stories about why their lives would benefit from ending um, incarceration in Los Angeles County. And then getting folks to, to vote for Measure R, which meant voting against jail expansion in Los Angeles County. And so um, we had folks that literally like knocked on thousands of doors to be able to have those conversations with white folks particularly, as well as in the lead up to this election, we were doing phone calls to folks, to white folks in particular, to have conversations around the district attorney and getting folks to not vote for uh, Jackie Lacey. So those are, you know, some of the ways that our work, you know, and we have so much, you know, so many other things going on, but, you know, folks really want to know, they can uh, go to awarela.org and go to uh, how to get involved. And we have a listing of all the ways that folks can get involved in our work and learn more about us. We're, si we're sitting so here, we, our I, mind is just like blown. I'm sitting yeah. here like, I can't type fast enough. And I, I realize that what I'm doing is very stupid because we're recording. But I'm like, <laughs> taking notes. Um, <laughs> that I, that is, it, it's so, it's so helpful for us, of course, but it's so helpful for our listeners to hear um, sort of the, the ins and outs of what an organization uh, does even day to day. Because I think people say activists and you think, well, I have to go make my sign and go protest. Right. Right, that's, right. That's what an activist does. Um, and sure, that's part of it, but um, it's also so, so much more. Um, so thank you for for thank you for that information. And I, if I could just interject on the activist versus organizer, um, yeah. because I I think it's important it's an important distinction to make that yes, as an activist, you know, you're amplifying demands, you're showing up with your bodies, you're making signs. But what Dahlia was describing is organizing. You are doing political education. You are bringing more people into the fold. Uh, you're actively building with uh, your solidarity partners, with other organizations. Uh, you're supporting the policies. You're supporting the campaigns. And, and that takes organizing. That takes relationship building. Um, that takes uh, a, a certain level of dedication, a skill set that you develop over time uh, through those partnerships. And so folks often start as activists. You know, they they go and they they believe in a message, they believe in a vision, and they show up. Um, but the next step really in 
in in the work is to become an organizer. And granted, not everyone has the capacity or the desire to do that, um, but that's that's another level of commitment and participation um, that uh, folks like Dahlia and and many many others here in Los Angeles have have been dedicating their lives to. For sure, I appreciate that distinction because that's that's really important. I I think we would sort of be remiss if we didn't mention as we as we said before the recent coup that we <laughs> witnessed <laughs> oh that thing that, that old thing um, well, the good coup on a wednesday yeah you know mid last week it's, it's interesting to um to hear you both talk about uh, the work that you're doing um and to think that there are people in our country who believe they are doing just that um and that is what led to just the blatant insurrection um, last week. Uh, so it, that's troubling for me that we um, uh, were at a moment in, in our country's life where our there's there is no meat in the middle. You know, it's, there's no there's no gray area here. We have domestic terrorism, and then on the other side we have people fighting for um, equity. And I think the one of the issues is people comparing. Um, those two ideas right. and making it a both sides issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I wonder, and, and some of this is going to be really obvious to you both and, and maybe to our listeners, but I, I think it's important to flesh out. I wonder if um, either of you could speak to the the attempted coup in how, two, two things, I guess, on the difference in treatment uh, that, that the white supremacists received um, in storming the Capitol, uh, so speak to how uh, how they're treated differently from, you know, this summer and all the protests we saw with Black Lives Matter and um, the violence that was uh, was brought down upon them. Um, but also to the folks who part- participated in this action would call them they call themselves patriots. They are, you know, fighting for their rights, they say. And it's their message is, is almost so, or the the way they describe their work is almost, it's very similar to the things you're describing. It's just for evil and, and, <laughs> and for, yeah, and for inequity. So I, sorry, that's a very loaded question. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to unpack here. Um, yeah. I guess I'll start off with saying that, you know, what happened um, this last week did not happen overnight. You know, mm-hmm. the the Trump administration aided and abetted by the Republican Party um, and other white supremacists have been uh, waging a war against uh, black people and people of color, um, you know, throughout the entire administration. And uh, and I would say through the entire history of the United States. And so when I hear the the rhetoric that, you know, there was a police failure, I, um, you know, I, I'm taken aback because this is exactly what police were founded to do, um, mm-hmm. to uphold white supremacy and to protect white supremacists. And so this was not a police failure. They did exactly what they've done historically and what they've been trained to do. And so the fact that there wasn't enough police at the Capitol uh, to respond to the level of violence is not shocking or surprising to me. 
And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's important to also point out just like the absurdity of white supremacy, where these white supremacists were attacking an institution of white supremacy. And and what what Dahlia was speaking to earlier around, you know, this mutual interest to ending white supremacy, that it also harms white people. And so this is like a really clear example of how, you know, the snake is eating its own tail. Um, And so just, you know, first and foremost, I I wanted to lay that out. Um, But of course, it has been clearly laid out over the last few days, you know, the 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 response by police towards uh, Black Lives Matter protests um, and the response to this white supremacist, you know, attempted coup. Uh, It's clear. I mean, it's been talked about in mainstream uh, news, which, you know, I was surprised that they were, that mainstream news has actually been articulating what all of us have been saying for so long, that, that there is a, a clear difference to the way that law enforcement treats black folks and their allies and supporters versus, um, white people. I mean, there's, there's no arguing. This is like a very clear example of that. Um, and so I think the, the question that we need to ask ourselves now, and I think, you know, what I'd like to challenge, um, your listeners to think about is like, how do we address white supremacy without further emboldening or empowering the prison industrial complex and the police. Mm -hmm. Because when Mm. we feel unsafe, where we see this insurrection, a lot of folks' first impulse is, well, we need more surveillance. Well, we need more police. Well, we need a stronger, you know, system to, to hold these folks accountable in punitive ways. And what ends up happening when fear expands and emboldens our systems of policing and surveillance is that at the end of the day, it's black people that are going to be hurt by this. It's not white people. And so I I really want to challenge folks to think about, you know, Mm. holding accountability because accountability must be had. Um, But also, you know, being very cautious about the creep of surveillance and policing in, in light of what happened. Yeah, like it makes me think about after, you know, there's a school shooting and usually the conversation in the mainstream media is, you know, people on the right, we need more guns in schools and then people on the left saying we need more um, gun restriction laws. Like, and so I I see that happening now where it's like, oh, well, the police didn't have enough equipment. The police more coordination with their their local uh what do they call those centers the uh fusion centers where it's like police and communication with the department of homeland security and communication with whatever whatever and so they they need you know just more resources more money more coordination and you know some of the uh analysis i've been seeing from some folks that we work with here in los angeles um an organization called vigilant love they put out a report around you know the frame of framing white supremacist violence as domestic terrorism, because when you frame it as domestic terrorism, that there's an opportunity that opens up the floodgates for, you know, the federal government 
to then uh, put more resources into something called domestic terrorism that only ultimately ends up upping the charges on black folks other in people of color, on protesters on the left being charged with right. domestic terrorism versus actual white supremacists, giving more money, like um, Yvette was saying, to surveillance and so forth. So, you know, it's 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 we're in this place of like, how do we talk about it with precision? And how do we talk about it with nuance? How do we talk about accountability that doesn't end up being, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, similar to like after 2001 with the Patriot Act, for example? It was just like, how do we how do we avoid this sort of like sweeping creep of of the state across our our folks who are you know not white supremacists? Yeah, and I, and I also want to tie this into like the material conditions in in our country right now. Um, it's it's no surprise and you know i'm going to take us way back to nazi germany that during an, a, a massive economic recession we started seeing in germany this this rise of um of national socialism this this rise of anti-semitism and folks in germany who would otherwise not subscribed to that at least politically because of their material conditions, because of their loss of employment, the fact that they couldn't feed their families, they saw this, this rise of national socialism as the solution. And so when we're looking at those, those hotbeds of white supremacy they're here in this country now, there, there's a strong correlation between poverty and the, the grip of these malicious and and white supremacist institutions and that's not to say that we don't see white supremacy you know through all strat all class strata but when we're thinking about like how do we take the fuel out of the equation it's by supporting changing the material conditions starting with black folks because when we change the material conditions with black folks for black folks we change the material conditions for everyone when we're investing in poor communities, we're actually supporting folks in 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 having stability and a stable economy, a, a stable family life, a, a stable community actually takes the wind out of the sails of white supremacy. So I, I also want to challenge folks to think about, like, how do we address the root causes of of this type of um, insurgency? Like, how do we address those social conditions so that we're not creating hotbeds for white supremacy? Mm -hmm. And especially when we think about the reasons why race was ever was created, which was to divide the working class. And so it's working class white folks that actually have the most to gain by working in solidarity uh, with, right. with black folks, indigenous folks and other people of color led movements. And we're seeing showing up for racial justice national doing a lot of good work in investing in uh, poor and working class communities across the country and in the southern regions and rural regions, um, really working with developing uh, ways to have conversations with poor and working class white folks about the benefit of, uh, you know, and uh, of working in solidarity to create better material conditions for all of us. So I think that the blueprint is there, that work is happening. Um, even, you know, when we look at Georgia, the way that folks were thrown in, um, in Georgia to, to really support that campaign there, it was, it was having those conversations and, and working with poor and working class uh, white folks, because again, you know, we know it's, it's poor and working class white folks who have the most to gain by a change. And it's the the elite white folks who have the most to benefit by the status quo.
in in sort of wrapping up, we do want to make sure that you know you were you mentioned how do we uh, Yvette, you mentioned how do we discuss some of these issues with um, with nuance and with particularity um, while not. Uh, you know, making sure that we're saying, you know, why weren't there just more police at the Capitol, for example, or why don't we, why aren't there more cameras so we can all be surveilled and why can't we, you know, to help uh, catch these guys. And so um, uh, all that is to say, nuance is so important. And I know that one of the ways, and here's my segue, one of the ways that you all uh, speak in a very nuanced way is on your own podcast. Uh, and so I hope that uh, you can take a couple minutes here to tell our listeners about your podcast and where they can find you. And to the extent that, um, to, you know, that there are social media handles or, or, or other organizations that you want to include, please um, feel free to, to, to list them now. And of course, we'll put we'll put links in our in our show notes as well. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, so Bold Conversations About Race is a project that we've been working on the last couple years, um, which is uh, a collaboration with Small Beans Comedy and Showing Up for Racial Justice. And your listeners can find the um, episodes at the Small Beans um, Patreon page um, and or wherever you're, you know, you find whether it's Apple iTunes or wherever, uh, um, SoundCloud as well. So just look for bold conversations about race. And we have several episodes up there that talk about a lot of different uh, topics that we'd love to invite, invite y'all to take a listen to. And then in terms of following white people for black lives, you can check us out at WP, the number four, BL on all social media handles. And you can uh, link up with us at awarela.org and you can get on our listserv that way and, and learn about all our different activities we got going on. And if people want to follow Justice LA on social media, we're at Justice LA now. And you can follow us on um, our website uh, by signing up for our email list at um, justicelanow.org. And if folks want to follow Dignity and Power Now, which is the organization that I work for, um, it's we're at DPN uh, on social media. All right. Well, Yvette, Ale, and uh, Dahlia for Lido, thank you so, so much for, for joining us. We could, uh, we could talk to you both for hours and hours. Um, we appreciate the work that you're doing, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to have you on again at some point. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you all. Thank you so Thank much. Great. It was great. And now it's time for this episode's action item. Jonathan, what do you got? All right. So this one is like surgically specific. <laughs> this episode's action item is to purchase a copy of any book by James Baldwin from a black owned bookstore and read the book. That's a really good one. Thank you. I love the simple but effective one. Yeah. Like just go do Buy that and, and you it. will be better for it, I think. Yeah. Anything by him. Look at the most popular ones. If you haven't read anything by James Baldwin, look at the most popular ones, which means they're the most digestible by the most amount of people mm -hmm. in my mind. So, like, still sort of protecting white people's feelings a little bit. But you'll be very uh, enlightened. put in some feelings by what you read. It'll be great. This episode of Black Anne was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me. 
and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com. You can find Black Ann wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and and keep keep asking asking questions. questions.